Probably one of the least talked about New Testament characters is a man by the name of Stephen. How many know who Stephen is? Okay, who is Stephen? Well, he's found in the book of Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And uh, Stephen was, he started out his ministry as a deacon in the church. So all of us who are faithful to the local church, I want to just encourage you. That's a beginning point. And Stephen was a server, and there was a crisis in the church, right? And in chapter 6, it said there was division in the church because the people, there were widows who were being neglected in a ministry. They were Hebrew-speaking widows and Greek-speaking widows, and the Greek-speaking widows were not being ministered to. And so the apostles had this problem, and they said, we got to solve it. And how they solved it was by selecting some Greek-speaking servants who would actually attend to that ministry of caring for widows. Now, how many go, wow, it doesn't sound very illustrious. You know, I'm starting out my ministry caring for old people. You know, isn't that true? I mean, we all line up for that job, right? But I'm going to tell you what happens. When we are faithful in the little things, what does God do? He gives us greater responsibilities. Now, you ever wondered why Stephen's not really discussed? Well, when you read his story, we get a little uncomfortable with it. Why? Because Stephen is a man full of the Spirit, and he begins to do miracles, and people are responding to his ministry, but he ends up dying. And I think that kind of, you know, kind of, we, we, we look at his life and go, well, you know, Stephen, you're a nice man, but I don't really want to follow you, right? We get a little uncomfortable with, you know, living a life that will lead us to our death. Isn't that true? I mean, how many people say, I really feel I have the gift of martyrdom today? Raise your hand, you know? I've met a few people, but usually there are people that come out of a culture of suffering. They have a whole different way of looking at life. And I, I believe that we're, we're relatively uncomfortable with that level of commitment, as a matter of fact, I think as North Americans, we're really uncomfortable with commitment, period. We really are. We have a problem with that word. I, I remember years ago as a youth pastor, and I, and I was talking about commitment, and somebody just literally tore a strip right off of me. They were so upset because I used the word commitment. It was like it was a swear word. Isn't that amazing? And this was a wonderful person. It really shook me up. So in our affluent and comfortable culture... Here in North America, we really don't like rocking the boat. How many have noticed that? Because, you know, we really enjoy this life. Isn't that true? And so often what we tend to do is accommodate our culture because we really enjoy this good life. And we really want to experience all that this life has to offer. And yet sometimes I wonder, in living this kind of a life, if we're not missing a better life. You go, what do you mean, Pastor? I'm convinced there's a life that really begins to get exciting. You know, a lot of Christians are bored. Not all Christians, but a lot of Christians are bored. They're bored with their Christian experience, and they're going through the motions. And yeah, they, they, they believe in God, and they go to church, and they do good things. They're not necessarily doing bad things. And because we don't commit bad things, we think we're okay. But there's a whole list of sins called the sins of omission. It's the things that we should be doing that we're not doing. And a lot of times, we don't even think about those things. Isn't that true? We never walk around saying, I should have, you know, maybe helped this person, right? You know, and, and the Bible says to, for him to know to do good and not to do it, that's a sin. And that's what I'm talking about, those sins of omission. So a lot of times, you know, we, we, we don't suppress the truth, we just don't communicate the truth. And we leave a lot of people around us in a state of darkness. Because we're, we're afraid that if we say something, they may not respond in a positive way. Isn't that true? We're afraid to alienate people. How many here can say, you know, I, I really don't want to alienate anybody, you know? And, and isn't that kind of our culture? We don't want to, you know, make people feel bad. Or we don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Well, we're going to look a little bit at Stephen, and you're going to find out he really makes people feel uncomfortable. How many know that Jesus actually made some people uncomfortable? Matter of fact, Jesus, speaking the way he did to certain situations, actually got him crucified. If Jesus had just kept his mouth shut a few times, he wouldn't have got into the trouble he was in. Anybody know that? But he, you know, I've read my Bible. I'm just going, Jesus, if you'd just be quiet here, you wouldn't cause these guys to get so upset. But he doesn't do that. He actually starts it off. He actually confronts some of the wrong thinking that's going on in people's lives. Hmm. 
To live as a true follower of Jesus in obedience to him, we must not remain silent or else evil will continue to grow in our land. How many say, I'm really concerned, Pastor, I see evil growing in our land? Anybody notice? Is there anybody witnessing evil growing in our land? Well, why? Why is it doing that? Why do you think that's happening? See, we can curse the darkness. How many of us are really counterproductive? Or else we can stand up for what's right. And I think we need to be shining lights. I think now it's getting harder to stand up and speak. Isn't it true? And if you start saying some things, you may even be politically incorrect. I find myself politically incorrect most of the time. Eugene Peterson says, you know, it is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. People who tell the truth not infrequently get killed. Wow. The word used in the first Christian century to foretelling the truth about God in a given situation is martis. And has come into our language as martyr. The person who loses his life for telling the truth. It's going to cost us something. So, who is this man, Stephen, and what brought about this intense hatred that led to his death? Well, we find his story, as I've already said in Acts 6 and 7, certain widows are neglected. We know that discrimination is a terrible thing. But as we continue to read the text, we discover Stephen moves beyond just ministering to widows. He, God was working mightily in his life. And let's pick up his story in Acts 6, 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Oh, by the way, Paul was part of that synagogue in Cilicia. So he's there, listening to Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So now he's speaking, and the Spirit of God is working through him, giving him divine wisdom. Now, in verse 11, it says, they secretly persuaded. You know, they couldn't refute what he was saying. So they, they persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. So Stephen is just doing his thing, you know, preaching the word of God. But they wanted to silence him because he was getting through to these guys. And so they brought him before the Sanhedrin, which is really the parliament of their day, the Jewish parliament. Could you imagine being brought to court because you're just telling the truth? Isn't that kind of what's happening to Stephen? He's, he, he's, not, he's not trying to make this happen. It's just happening. You know? Stephen is a faithful witness. And they're so threatened by him that they now plot against him and they falsely accuse him. And it says they produce false witnesses. Doesn't, how many see a parallelism between Jesus and Stephen right now? How many see it? It's almost like he's following in the footsteps of Jesus. Can you see that? And now he's standing before the Sanhedrin. Jesus was before the Sanhedrin. They brought false witnesses against Jesus. They're bringing false witnesses against Stephen. And he said, this fellow never stops speaking against his holy place and against the law. And then you see the demeanor of Stephen. Now, how many here would go, wow, we'd be almost cracking under this pressure. But here the Spirit of God is at work in Stephen's life. And it says, And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, how many get a sense that Stephen's not falling apart here? Yeah, how many get that? As a matter of fact, who is really in control in the courtroom? And the answer is, Stephen is. And the same thing that happened with Jesus. Remember when he was under the court ruling? Same thing. You know, Jesus is the one that's, you know, in control, and everybody else is uptight. Same thing with Stephen. Here's what Jesus now promises in the book of John, or sorry, in the Gospel of Mark, and is now demonstrated in the life of Stephen. It says, You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. So God is actually telling us that one of the things he wants to do with us is make us a witness. And he wants to bring us to places that we would normally not volunteer for. How many see that? Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to some of you. How many here say, yeah, I'm volunteering. I want to go to court. You know, I want, <laughs> right? We don't think this way. But Jesus is saying this to these disciples. And then he says, and the gospel must be preached to all the nations. 
So Jesus has an agenda. God the Father has an agenda that the good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ must be communicated to everyone. And whenever you are arrested, so how many begin to realize that God anticipates that some of us are going to be put in jail? Does anybody see that? How many see it? I mean, it's anticipated. This could happen to us. It's not like we're going out and trying to break the law. It's not that, you know, we're trying to do some bad things and then we get thrown in jail and say, I'm being persecuted as a Christian. No, this is just standing up, speaking the truth, and now false witnesses are coming against us. We're being arrested. We're put in the prison here. And it says, don't even worry beforehand about what to say. See, you don't have to prepare a sermon here. You don't need your books and figure it all out. It says here, just whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Whoa, isn't that powerful? So what happens? God speaks through Stephen. And when you read the message that he brings, you know, he just goes down through their history. And then he finally says, you know, you guys are just like your forefathers. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. And pretty soon it says they were gnashing their teeth. They were putting their hands over their ears. We don't want to hear this guy anymore. And then Stephen says, hey, I see Jesus. I see the heavens open. I see Jesus standing up. That was too much for them. They drug him out and they stoned him to death. Okay? But the Bible says at that moment they were laying their cloaks at the feet of Saul. Who is who? Saul is the, you know, the Hebrew name for a man that we later know as Paul. That's his Roman name. And the Apostle Paul has been witnessed to by Stephen. And what happens is now Paul or Saul is so upset. He's running around arresting people. He's on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians. We know the story. Jesus appears to him in a, you know, in a divine vision. You know, he has an appearance, a, a, you know, a theophany. Christ comes to him and says, Why are you? It's hard to go against your conscience, isn't it, Saul? In other words, he was convicted by what he had been doing. And he could remember back to that moment where Stephen, his face like an angel, he sees God, he's testifying. And then he says these amazing words as he's being stoned. What does he say? Father, do not lay the sin against them. Isn't that beautiful? How many kind of hear an echoing of what Jesus says on the cross? You know, Father, don't lay the sin against against them. And as a result, God answers that prayer. And Paul is the result of Stephen's testimony, his witness, which included the giving up of his life. He laid down his life. He actually, you know, if you see it, he models the life of Christ right to the very end. Isn't that true? How many are going, well, I'm signing up. I really like Stephen. He's kind of my shining example. I'm ready to follow, follow Jesus like Stephen right to the end. You know, I know as North Americans, we don't even think this way. You're going, Pastor, I can't even wrap my mind around this. I'm joining you. But you know what I've noticed? People from other cultures who have suffered much for the sake of the gospel and have been persecuted, they actually consider it a privilege to suffer. The early church actually thought they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Have we ever suffered for Christ? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Well, let me move on. Because I think if you understand that element of Christianity, then you can really come into the book of Revelation and understand what's going on. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because the church was in a minority position, oppressed by a powerful government, and who were suffering under that government. Okay? And they're being martyred because of their faith, and they're asking the question, how long, O Lord, will this continue, that we have to suffer like this? And Revelation is an answer to that to show them that God's kingdom and power is greater than the human powers of this age. And boy, are these powers real and they seem powerful. And when you look at yourself, sometimes you feel weak and you feel like there's no hope for the church, right? It feels like evil is winning the day. The church seems to be struggling. I'm just trying to paint a picture. Isn't that true? Okay, so let's turn to Revelation chapter 10. What's the encouragement that we need to gain to sustain us in a time when evil is ascending and the church feels like they're being silent? What kind of a word do we need to hear? When we live in a time where what is considered wrong is now celebrated as right and what was once considered wrong is now considered wonderful. You know, we're living in a time where, you know, what is evil is considered good and what is good is considered evil. We're confused. This is a confused culture. Does anybody know that? 
and is becoming more confused all the time. So Revelation chapter 10, I'm going, to, I'm going to start in verse 7. We'll go back to verse 1 in a bit. But verse 7 says, Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land. This is interesting. Quite an angel. He's standing in two spots, sea and land. He raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay. That's an interesting expression. What are you talking about? No more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. And I believe that this is an answer to the cry found in chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they had called out in a loud voice, verse 10, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And now in chapter 10, God says, I'm not going to delay any longer. Why does God delay and allow evil to triumph for so long? Isn't that a good question? And Peter gives us the answer. God is not willing that any should perish. God is long-suffering, not wanting anyone to perish. God is delaying his judgment so that people can, can come into his kingdom. How many think that's an awesome reason? Isn't that the mercy of God? You know, because judgment is not quickly expedited, people think, well, then I won't be judged. Isn't that true? How often we interpret the fact that we're getting away, quote-unquote, with something. And a lot of people feel like getting away with things. And my answer is, no, they're not. It's just delayed. And why does God delay? So they can change their mind and recognize they've done wrong. Isn't that true? And how many here are so glad that God did not judge you before you came to Christ? Aren't you glad that God delayed and revealed himself and showed mercy rather than judgment? I say thank God for that. And there's so many people in our city that are in a condition right now that if God was to judge for sin, many people in this community would perish. Isn't that true? Sure it is. And so God is showing mercy to our communities, delaying judgment so that people have an opportunity to repent and come into his kingdom. Okay. But that precedes the thought that you and I need to be sharing the message of his kingdom with people, right? So, John is now going to be called to be a part of what he's witnessing. And you know, God is not interested in spectators, God is interested in participation. Okay, so God is now going to invite all of us, just like he does John, into what he's doing. How many want to be a part of what God's doing? I want to be a part of what God's doing. Well, let's take a look at what God is doing. And I think in Revelation 10, we see two elements that challenge us to be like John, to get involved. Okay, so what are those two elements? And the first one is that you and I need to internalize God's word. Okay, it's interesting that we need to devour God's word so that it becomes intrinsic. It becomes the essence of who we are. Notice the nature of the messenger here in chapter 10, verse 1. It opens up. There's an angelic being who's bringing this message to John. And it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like a sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. Now these are all descriptive words, and if you read chapter 1, they even describe Christ, okay? So some commentators have actually thought this was Christ, but it's not, okay? But this angel has been in the presence of God. That's what we need to understand. And it says here, uh, he was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. So now, remember the seals were closed, Jesus opened up, but now there's a scroll here, and it's an open scroll. So it's in his hand, and it says... He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So this is a colossal being. How many see that? You, don't, you can't just do that. <laughs> uh, and then he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Voice of God spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, a couple of thoughts come from that. Number one, the immensity of the stature and status of this angel. It's not Jesus, but he's been in God's presence. And you know, angels are used, as Gordon Fee said, to bring encouragement, not entertainment. 
Okay? How many know that God sends his angels to help us who are heirs of salvation? You know, you don't know this, but you've been helped by God's angels. Many times we're just unaware of it. We just don't see it. We're kind of like Elisha's servant. You know, we're walking around and, you know, he's freaking out. There's an army about to arrest them. And Elisha says, well, just open his eyes, God. And when he opens his eyes, he sees another army around that army. But they're the heavenly army. So Elisha is totally calm because he sees what his servant cannot see. Folks, you know, it's so powerful. You and I need to have our eyes opened. We need to begin to see what most people are not seeing. Amen? See, a lot of times we get all up in a knot. We're all frustrated. We're worried. We're upset. Isn't it true? Because we only see life as the natural expression of life with all of its challenges. Would to God we could see what God is seeing. And it's a lot different. And I think we'd have a lot more encouragement if we see it. And I think that's why we're getting this beautiful picture of this angel who's towering above earth, one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. What a powerful statement. Uh, Leon Moore says, He treads the sea as easily as the land. It also means that his message is a universal message. That's what he's interpreting, this angel. It concerns all weather on land or sea. His posture is also an indication of gigantic size. The world despises Christians as members of a little insignificant church. It held all that they stood for as of no account. In other words, you guys are marginalized in society. But their faith was based on the word of God, and that word is in the hands of this colossal figure who, though only dimly seen through the enveloping cloud, spans both land and sea. God's word is supremely significant. It towers above all the affairs of man. I love what Leon Morris is saying. He's saying simply this, guys. Listen to me very carefully. What God says is more important than all of what you and I see in the world. All of what, what's going on around us is all temporary. All the great declarations of all the world leaders, you know, eventually come to nothing. But God's word is eternal. And when God says it, it'll happen. And we need to stand on this amazing word that can sustain our soul when our personal world seems shattered and broken and small. We need that word. You know, the seven thunders, you know, as I've already said, is probably expressing the voice of God. But isn't it interesting that God says to John, I don't want anybody else to know what I just said. That says to me that what God has in mind is kept from us. There's not, God doesn't tell us everything. How many kind of understand that? You and I don't know all that's in the heart and mind of God. Okay? He only gives us what he thinks we need to know. And I, and I was meditating on this this week, you know, and it strikes me. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, I was reading this and I was so struck by this thought. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. I was meditating on lean not to your own understanding. And I thought about it. Why shouldn't we lean on our own understanding? Well, I'll tell you why. Do you and I know everything? Are we finite? Yes, we're we're limited. We don't have all the information. So when we make decisions, no matter how smart we think we are, no matter how much information we think we have, it's never enough. And you and I can't see the future. And so it's always a wise person who says, you know, as much as I know, I'm still going to trust God. And God, I'm looking to you because you know everything. And my hope and confidence is in you. And so I'm going to trust you. And I think when you and I learn to trust God rather than ourselves, we're putting ourselves in a good place. Because we're trusting in the infinite, limitless one versus trusting ourselves who, you know, we have limitations, right? So I think that's wisdom on our part. How unwise of us to lean in our own understanding. But I think God always gives us enough information to make good decisions, okay? The reason for the angels coming is to give a message, verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go and take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land... And verse 9 says, So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. Isn't that interesting? This is almost like your two-year-old coming into your room. You know, we have grandchildren now. When they're really little, they don't open it up and start reading the words. They usually open it up and start chewing on it. Right? How many have had that experience? The child crawls over, grabs the book, and starts eating it. Wow, that's, that's an interesting thought. I mean, they're going to ingest it, right? They're going to eat it. 
And yet there's that picture here that we're seeing. It says, take and eat it. Wow. And he said, it will turn your stomach sour, but your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And I tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Now, this is also a picture. It's pictured earlier in the scriptures. Another prophet did this. And we find this in the book of Ezekiel chapter 2. Isn't that interesting how the New Testament so often is reflecting things that are happening in the Old Testament. And that gives us an understanding of how we should look at the story. It says... God is speaking to Ezekiel the prophet. He's a little reticent because he's, he's actually saying things people don't want to hear. How many have ever had to go tell somebody a message they, you knew that they probably wouldn't want to hear? Isn't that difficult? So he says to Ezekiel, you must speak my words to them whether they listen or fail to listen. Well, you know, it's really nice when people listen to you. It's really frustrating when you're, you're explaining something, you're trying to help, and they're just not listening. And it says, for they are rebellious. This is why they're not listening. So the human heart has a condition called hardness of heart. And it's rebellious against God. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. So here we go again, eating the word of God. And I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And in it was a scroll, which he had unrolled before me. And on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. How many know That's not fun. In other words, God was going, here's what you're going to have to tell these people. And it's not a nice message. He says, and he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat the scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And then he said to me, son of man, eat the scroll. I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. But later on, you find out that he's going, but boy, I was... Bitter, I was in bitterness of spirit. In other words, the message and the response to the people created a negative experience. And isn't it true in our lives? You know, we can get all excited. We hear the word of the Lord. We get excited about it. And then we go tell somebody and then it just falls flat. You know, because they have no interest in this life-giving word. And as a matter of fact, they get turned off. And you know what we're all fearful of? They, turn, they reject not only the message, but how many here have you experienced that? You've even felt rejection. Anybody feel that? And, you know, pretty soon people are just cutting you off and you just go, oh, I just lost somebody that I really cared about. They just cut me out. And that is a painful experience. And I know if you've walked with God, you'll experience this. It's painful. And it happens. So we have to allow his word, in other words, to shape our actions and purposes of our lives. You see, Eating the word of God. When you eat food, what's really happening to that food? It gets it gets into our system, right? And it and it actually brings vitality to all the parts of our human body. That's why we eat. Some people go, I just eat because I like it. You know, it tastes good. But the reality is it's more than just tasting good, it's actually what it's gonna do for us to bring us strength and energy and vitality. How many have gone without food for a while and you just felt sluggish and weak and headachy or maybe or you know you have all these issues in your body and you just felt tired, you didn't have the energy, right? Food helps create vitality and energy in our lives. You see, whatever you're eating is gonna impact your physical being. It's true. You can say what you eat, you become. So, probably have to pay attention to what we're eating, right? Better find out, is this a nutritious food or is this junk food that has no nutrition in it? Because, you know, your body, after a while, it's funny. It adjusts to what you're feeding it. And it is possible to starve yourself to death by eating the wrong food because you're not getting the right nutrition and it's unhealthy. Same thing in this spiritual realm. We've got to eat the right food. And in our world today, there's a lot of junk food out there. Isn't that true? And it's not healthy. And it's not nutritious. And it, you know, and we're getting so much garbage fed to us continuously. And, you know, people don't realize it. People think, well, you know, this is the way I think, Pastor. And I'm going, yeah, but where are you getting that thought life from? Well, it's what you're consuming that's producing the way you think. Now, if you're in the Word of God... You're gonna, it, it's going to affect the way you think and how you see life and how it's going to affect you emotionally. Can I, let me go down here and really, this is practical stuff, guys. If you and I will really begin to consume and apply the Word of God in our lives, it affects our emotional well-being. It affects our mental well-being. 
Come on now. You know, if I, I will, I'll make a guarantee. If you're sitting down there every single day, you open your Bible, you're reading your Bible, you're meditating on what you're reading, you're praying over what you're reading, you're asking God to speak into your life, you're thinking about what you're receiving from God, it's going to impact your day. Let me tell you, my days are impacted because of what I've read that day. I find that throughout that day, I'm utilizing the food that I've received that day. It's fresh in my mind. And the one thing that really struck me recently, and I've been you know, doing a lot of studying of late, and I was so struck with this thought that one of the great problems in the church is that we tend to forget. How many know we got good forgetters? And the Bible keeps saying, remember, remember, remember. And that's why one of the dangers of just isolating ourselves away from the people of God and then isolating ourselves from the word of God, eventually we start forgetting. It's not like we, you know, you'll you'll, you'll say something, go, yeah, I knew that. See, keyword, I knew that, but you've been not acting on it. You haven't been thinking about it. It hasn't been shaping your life. You have forgotten to implement this in your life. And that's one of the reasons you come to church, you know, as a pastor. Can you imagine? I study all the time. But when I go to church and I'm not preaching, I'm listening. And sometimes I'm going, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not being taught something new. I'm being reminded of something I needed to be reminded of. Isn't that true? And how many times you've come on a Sunday and, you know, I'm preaching something and you're going, yeah, well, I already knew that, Pastor. But the Spirit of God saying, yeah, you knew it. But I'm reminding you, you got to put it into practice because that's what you've been forgetting lately. And this is a reminder that you need to do this. And so I'm reminding you of the power of devouring and internalizing the Word of God so it so shapes the way I look at life. I'm looking at life through a lens. And every single human being is prejudiced. There's no such thing as objectivity. That's a myth. We are all prejudiced in this room. And I am deeply prejudiced. I am prejudiced by the word of God. I'm looking at life through that lens. I'm looking at life through God's lens. But if you think, you know, that's a bad statement to make, I'm going to argue that everybody else is prejudiced by the culture in which they're living. And whatever is being fed to them through the media and, you know, the educational system. And if if that stuff is becoming distorted and evil and warped, then you're going to have a distorted and evil and warped society. And we need to know that. And that's why Paul says, I beg of you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as what? A living sacrifice, right? Why? And then he goes on to say, but don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed How? By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You renew it through the word of God. You begin to allow your mind to develop a certain filter. Everybody in this room, you're you're living with filters. You are prejudiced. You grew up in a certain time. You grew up with certain values. It shaped your life. And now we're having a whole generation grow up. Listen very carefully to the scripture. It says, and then there was a generation that forgot. There was a generation that knew not Joseph. There was a generation that did not know God. And we're coming to a time in this nation where people have forgotten where we've come from. They have forgotten the values that have built this country. They have forgotten the word of the Lord. And now we're living in a time where people are making terrible, evil decisions. And we think that it's righteous and good. You know, we use terms like sick and wicked and righteous when it's really, you know, evil. It's just evil, according to God. Wow, strong stuff. Whew. Well, listen to what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, listen, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's only two options. Well, pastor, I'm a fence sitter. No, you're not. You're just deceived. You're either obeying God or you're disobeying God. There's no middle ground. That doesn't exist. We're either doing what God's asking us to do or we're not. Right? It's real simple. 
It's not enough to be hearers of God's word. It must be the essence of who we are. It's got to shape us. No wonder, Joshua, keep this book of the law always on your lips. You know, we should be talking. The word of God should be coming from us. It says, meditate on it day and night. Some of you go, man, my Bible, I haven't opened it in a while. It's getting a little dust collecting on it. Man, we should be internalizing it. This should be like I get up in the morning. How many here, you get up in the morning, you have breakfast? Anybody have breakfast in the morning? I had breakfast this morning. But I, before I had breakfast, I got into the Word of God. And I let the Word of God get into me. I fed my spirit and my soul. Yeah. Okay. It says, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. You know, it's not just for information and knowledge. It's so that I can do it. You know? I remember years ago, I'm reading a text, you know, from the Old Testament. There's a verse that says, now do it. Wow, that leaped right off the page at me. I was praying to God about something and God just said, now do it. I said, okay, I get the message. You know, don't dilly-dally around. How many know when God spoke to Abraham, says, I want you to take your only son and offer him up. It says, and immediately Abraham rose up and went. No procrastination. God told him what to do. He went and did it. He didn't argue with God. He just did it. Right? And then it says... Then you will be prosperous and successful. This is the key to a successful life. Psalm 1.1. Listen to the echoing. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked. In other words, it's not bracing the value system of our culture, standing in the way that sinners take or sits in the company of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Where do you think the psalmist came up with that verse? Joshua. How many catch on? The scriptures build on each other. You know, Paul says, think on these things in Philippians. Whatsoever things are good, pure, lovely. He's telling you what to think about. Psalm 119, I've hidden your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Let me move on to the second element. We have to internalize it. Then we have to externalize it. We have to experience the externalization of his word. Whatever you put in is going to come out. Right? Think about it. It's the idea of communicating. Look at verse 11. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, language, and kings. In other words, you must, or it could be translated. I was looking it up in the Greek. You know, it says, it is necessary that you prophesy or speak before these people. This is not option for you, John. This is what you must do. This is, this is you know, you've got to do this. You know, I don't think it's just John that has to do this. Jesus says, go and make disciples. Who's that for? All of us, right? You know, Eugene Peterson in his book, Reverse Thunder, says, St. John and the people to whom he is pastor are being prepared for the work of witness, the daily conversational use of words in the service of the gospel. To be a witness is just, it's more than just words. And the word of God has to come first and apprehend us in order for it to impact other people. I mean, it, when it gets a hold of you, then it's easier for you to impact others. Eating a book takes it all in, assimilating it into the tissue of your life. Witness first become, witnesses first become what they, what they then say. In other words, you say what you are. That's what Eugene Peterson is saying. In other words, you're just expressing the essence of who you are. Now, I got to just tell you a little story here. I say so much, but I'm running out of time. Uh, we went to Boston a couple of weeks ago, Patty and myself and Tom and Karen Lesher. And we went to some Boston Red Sox games. We went to Fenway Park. That was fun. And we did a little touring. We were all gone for about five days. And we stayed in this little town called Winthrop. Winthrop is kind of a suburb of Boston. And we went to a diner. You know, they have all these neat little restaurants there. And we got into this diner. And I'm wearing my Blue Jays hat, okay? Now, how many know that we're in, Bostonians are very proud people? If you don't know that. And Fenway is the oldest baseball park, and they give a tour. And, and I mean, they're like diehard Bostonians, and they're all proud of their team. And it, it's really exciting to be there. It's, if you like baseball, it's one of the best places to go and watch a game. So we're in Boston. And I get into this diner, and this guy, he's, he's the cook, but he's not behind somewhere. He's in an open diner, and he could see everybody coming in. The waitress, you know, she seemed like she had a bad day. But the cook was really friendly. 
His name was Stephen. He's, he's 60 years old. He comes bounding out. All right, Blue Jays, you know. I'm going, hey, that's all right. But then I noticed he had his white shirt on, but it was kind of thin. And underneath, he had a New York Yankees T-shirt under there. Now, you have to understand something. The New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, that's a big rivalry. They do not like each other. They don't like each other so much that anybody that beats the other team is on their side. That's how much they hate that other team. Okay? So he's all excited because Toronto's playing Boston, and he's picking for Toronto to beat Boston because he likes his Yankees, right? This guy was so much fun. He was out. He was chatting with us. Great restaurant. He, great cook. But, I mean, he was like a walking baseball encyclopedia. And what I found out was fascinating. He grew up in Boston. And so we said, how in the world did you become a New York fan, Yankees fan living in Boston? He said, when I was 11, I had this experience. The Yankees won the World Series. Boston was always terrible. He said, I went over to the dark side. <laughs> you know. And, and, and we went in there like three mornings in a row, and I took a picture with them. We just had a great time with them. But every morning, it was so much fun. He goes, great win, or, oh, that was a tough loss. or you know. And, and he was quoting all this baseball stuff, and I was just thinking, man, this guy's exuding baseball. I mean, he just oozed baseball. And I thought to myself, would to God that Christians would be so full of Jesus that they would just exude Jesus everywhere, you know? He was flying his colors in the most hostile environment possible. He's in the middle of Boston's, and all of these Boston Red Sox people are, they're sitting in his restaurant with all of their, you know, Boston Red Sox hats and all the rest of it. And I just can't imagine. He, he just handles it. No problem. He's just like, I'm a New York Yankees fan and proud of it. You know, it was just so, so beautiful. And I'm just thinking, man, what a great illustration of what we need to be as Christians, right? We need to understand we're in the middle of hostile territory, but we need to fly the colors. We are believers in Jesus Christ and proud of it. Amen. You know what? And I think we need to devour, not the baseball statistics, but we need to devour the Word of God so that when someone asks us a question, it's just oozing out of our system, right? It didn't take much to prompt Stephen to talk about baseball, did it, Patty? Nothing. He was like on it. You know, he was giving us, we weren't even asking. He was telling us the games he saw and who did what. I mean, it was amazing. I just thought, wow, this is, this is outstanding. But let me point out to us, it, is, it would be irresponsible. Or Let me go back here and say this. You know, the great cry of our world is for authenticity. Isn't that true? That's what people want. If you're real, they may not agree with you, but they're going to go. They're flying their colors, you know. And I think a lot of people have opinions about God, which they are not hesitant to voice, but such talk is worthless or worse. Just because a conversation or a sermon has the word God in it does not qualify it as a Christian witness. There's got to be life in it. Amen? And we've got to have the life of God in us. Excuse me. <laughs> Pardon me. Yeah, thanks. So, what are we to do? What are we to do? I'm going to sneeze one more time here. So, Uh-oh. Do. Well, we have a message, do we not? We have a message from the Most High God. We do. You know, we can either remain silent, we can distort it, we can speak out in a judgmental manner, or we can speak out in love. I think the last one is what we need to do. We need to remember that God's servants of old spoke it out with tears in their eyes, but they were still persecuted. Such is the nature of a hard and rebellious heart. And while they were listening to Stephen, let me close with this. And they saw the countenance of an angel in his face. It says in Acts chapter 7 and verse 54, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gathered not that they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, Jesus actually sits at the right hand of God. What an amazing moment. Jesus now stands. Wow. What's he doing? He's welcoming Stephen. You know, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. 
They didn't want to hear this. They rushed at him. Dragging him out of the city, began stoning him. And meanwhile, the witnesses threw their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not lay this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And what was the result? Paul became a Christian. Not at that moment, but eventually. He became one of the most dynamic Christians. And how many lives did Stephen reach by reaching just that one man? How many? I'd say millions. Maybe even more. You know, because Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And he's been reaching people ever since. Paul's witness is really the words that we're reading in the New Testament. He's still reaching people. Who started this? Stephen did. Isn't that amazing? Let's stand. How many, as you're listening to this message today, you're thinking to yourself, I haven't even talked about all this future stuff that most people rattle about in the Revelation. But you know, if I was preaching this sermon in the first century, this would be applicable. If I was preaching the sermon in the second century, it would still be applicable. If I was preaching the sermon in the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh century, it'd still be applicable. As a matter of fact, if Jesus tarries into the 24th century, you could read the words of the sermon. It would still be applicable. You know what that tells me? I think we're getting a better understanding of what this is all about. What this is all about is simply this. God is trying to say to his church, listen, I know that you may think of yourself as weak and insignificant in the face of all of the glamour and glitz and the money and the power that you see around you. But I want you to know today that God's word is eternal. And what you and I are doing has such significance, it transcends time. It's eternal. I love it. I want you to know today that when you and I begin to eat and devour this book and it begins to shape the way we look at life and see life, it not only builds us up and not only encourages us and strengthens us and transforms us and brings victory and strength into our lives, but it gives us the you know, wisdom to speak into the de- death and the decay that's happening in our culture. I believe that as you and I begin to devour this book and meditate upon it, that God will give us the courage and the wisdom and the strength to speak forth these words and bring life into the lives of people around us. That people's lives can be touched, not just now, but for generations to come. You can change the course of entire family structures by bringing this good news to one person. You have no idea the power of that transformed life. Even as Stephen had no idea by laying down his life, he was literally going to reach one of the most dynamic Christians of all centuries, of all the centuries. And so what am I saying to us today? I'm challenging us. You know, we can be doing a lot of things with our lives, but there's nothing greater than to devouring God's word, internalizing it, and then bringing that witness to our world. I want you to know there are a lot of people today living in darkness. And I say that to our shame. Lord, help me be courageous enough to speak, even though it may cost me a relationship here. I may be rejected there. But you know, at the end of the day, what's really going to matter, what's really going to matter is the lives we touched and changed. Isn't that true? And how many here today say, you know what? I need God's grace in my life. But you know, it begins, but making a commitment. I'm not going to let you off the hook today. I want you to say to yourself, I need to spend more time in the word of God. Right now, just, that's you. God speaking to you. I need to spend more time devouring this book, internalizing it. And I need to, I want you to pray with me, pastor, that God will so attune me to my world around that I can begin to see people differently. And begin to share this amazing, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, even though I know it may cost me something. But if I have to suffer, I'm only following in the footsteps of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and of that amazing first witness, Stephen, who we rarely talk about because we're uncomfortable, let's face it, with suffering and dying. You know, it's very seldom that we ask people to make that kind of a commitment. If Jesus Christ made this commitment of giving his entire life for you, are you and I willing to make that kind of a commitment to give our entire life for him? How many here say, yes, I am. I'm willing to make that commitment. 
I did years ago. I've made that commitment. I laid down my life. I said, I gave up my rights. I am now your slave. I'll do exactly what you asked me to do. And I will tell you one thing. I have never regretted that decision to follow Jesus Christ with everything. It's always the right decision. You're saying, yeah, but I'm giving up. Yeah, but you're going to get so much more. You can never give up more than what God's willing to give you. To give up your life for his sake is the greatest honor that you and I could ever have. But we don't think of it that way. But it is. You know, a lot of young men have gone out and fought a war and they gave their lives for their country. We honor them and rightfully we should. But how many of us in this room right now should say, I'm going to willing to give up my life and the rest of my life to honor the one who created me and died for me. Let's take this stuff seriously, guys. We need to bring this good news to this world. Otherwise, evil will continue to triumph. The only way to overcome evil is by doing good. And one of the good things we can do is by bringing this wonderful message of hope and life to a world lost in brokenness and sin. And for every person that rejects you, two people will hear you. We've got to not be afraid. Speak out. Just keep going to people. And you know, salespeople are trained. You know, they, don't, they know they're not going to sell to every person they approach. The successful salespeople never give up. They just keep going and eventually someone's interested. And I've discovered that in this Christian life. Yes, there are people that are not interested, but I've discovered a lot that are. And I just focus in on them. I just keep reaching out to others. Let's pray God help us as a church. Can we make this an amazing summer? Let's invite people. We have an opportunity. Alpha, that's easy to invite people to. But you can invite them to Christ. Invite them to church, right? Let's get so excited that we ooze Jesus. We'll be like my friend there in uh, Winthrop who oozed baseball. I had so much fun with him. It was great. But you know what? I was thinking, man, I wish we could just ooze Jesus like this guy's oozing baseball. That would be so awesome. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning. What an amazing testimony, the life of Stephen. What an amazing testimony, John, who had this great vision that you told him and commanded him to devour your word so that he, Lord, could be a dynamic witness. Lord, help us to be faithful in a faithless age. Help us, oh God, to speak the truth in love. Help us, Lord, to stand up for what's right in a world that's gone evil. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.